Well, we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Luke after about a month uh, away from it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7 with me. And in just a moment, I'll be reading the first ten verses of that chapter. It's a passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, that contains a miracle. In fact, it contains two miracles. The one miracle that we often focus on when we look at this passage is Jesus healing the servant of the centurion. And that's certainly a miracle. He does it not from up close. He does it from a distance. Just by speaking the word, Jesus is able to heal this man who is sick and is dying. But that's not the biggest miracle in this passage. That's the one that catches our attention. There's a greater miracle going on in this section of Scripture. And that is the faith of the centurion. Now, the other miracle is, is, is amazing. But whenever God grants faith to any individual, and in this case, a Roman centurion, it is the greatest miracle of all. And that's what we're going to really focus on this morning. So look with me at Luke chapter 7, the first ten verses. It says, After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say uh, to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture. Father, thank You for Your Word. And we ask that You would add Your blessing to its reading. We've heard it read, Father, and we're going to dig into it a little deeper now. But we rely on You to illuminate our hearts, to illuminate our minds, and to reveal to us Your truth based on Your Word. Father, thank You for this centurion. Thank You for the faith that You granted to him. The way that it was displayed to Jesus. The way that it delighted Jesus. And the example that it is for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, the first thing I want to do as we consider the faith of this centurion is talk a little bit about the centurion. 
Now, we don't have a lot of background of him. We don't know where he comes from exactly, and we don't know a lot of things about his personality. But there are some things that we can discern from the little that we're told about the centurion. First of all, we know that he was a Gentile. Just the fact that he was a centurion would lead us to that conclusion, that he probably was not a Jew. But later on, we see when Jesus comments on his faith, he contrasts him to those that he's found in Israel. So it's pretty clear that the man was a Gentile. And what that means is that he was almost certainly not raised to love and to fear the one true God. He may not have been raised in Rome. He very easily could have been born and raised in some province of Rome. But it's very unlikely that he was a Jew. And so he was not raised with a knowledge of the Scriptures. He was not raised with an understanding of who God was. That God, the one true God, was a God of love. But that the one true God was also a holy God, a God of standards, a God who had given a law to show us what his standard was. He would not have, have, have had the information that he would have needed to recognize that he himself had run afoul of God's standard, that he had failed to give God the glory that he was required to give him. He would not have had a way to recognize as he was growing up that he had a problem that he was amassing wrath from God on himself. He would not have known, as you can know from the Old Testament, if the Spirit illuminates you, he would not have known that he required a sacrifice and that there was a perfect sacrifice coming, a Messiah, a Savior, who would rescue the world. He would have had no way of knowing those things. In fact, he was raised just the opposite of those things. The things that he was raised in were the antithesis of the way that a Jewish boy should have been raised. First, he was raised in pagan idolatry. So if he had a religious upbringing, or to the degree that he was religious as he was being raised, he would have been raised to observe gods that were completely different from the true God. Not gods at all, but gods that had been created by men in their own image. Gods that were greater than men were, but still very flawed and very limited. Gods who were very human-like. Gods who were wrathful but not loving. Gods who were flawed in their own moral character. And he may have sought to appease those gods, but he would not have learned to fear God and to seek to live a holy life. In addition to that, he would have likely been exposed to the Roman hedonism of the day. That is, he would have been taught to seek his own pleasure rather than to seek the glory of God. Which is also the antithesis of what God requires of us. It makes ourselves the center of our existence, the focus of our efforts, and our pleasure rather than God's glory, the thing that we strive for. This is how this man would have been raised. This is the character that he would likely have developed in his youth and into his adulthood. It's something that is uh, the exact opposite of what God would have morally required of him. Another thing that we know about him, of course, is that he's a military commander. The word centurion comes from the Latin word centum, which means 100. 
we get the word century from this, 100 years, or the word cent, one hundredth of a dollar, we get from the word centum. So we think of a centurion as one who leads a hundred men. And that was roughly what it was designed to be. Although in reality, centurions uh, commanded various sized companies. And this particular centurion would have been set uh, um, in command of whatever size garrison was stationed in Capernaum. And it was probably roughly a hundred men, give or take 20 or 30. Those are the men that he was assigned to lead. Now, Capernaum was a city of about 1,500 people, so it wasn't a huge city, but it was considered the most important city in this particular area of the province of Galilee. And so he would have had, basically, authority over a fairly large part of the nation or the the, the area, the region of of Galilee, which would have made him one of, or, or perhaps the most powerful men in the area, based on being the occupying force, the commander of the occupying force in this area, he would have had power over a great deal of it. The area of Galilee was um, under the rule of King Herod, who was given that by Rome in order to control that area. And it's likely that this centurion would have reported directly to Herod. And because of where he was, he probably didn't have to worry too much about the whole uh, um, political nature of the um, other centurions and didn't have to report to a lot of them. He was over in his own corner of the Roman Empire and would have reported to Herod. So he had a lot of power. Also, Roman centurions were paid fairly well, at least relative to other Roman soldiers. He would have been paid roughly 50 to 100 times as much as the lowest soldier. Now, the lowest soldier didn't make a whole lot, so it's not saying saying a lot, but he would have lived at least comfortably, and he would have had more income and more resources at his disposal than the average person living in Israel. So he had a relatively comfortable life, and in this career that he had chosen, he may not have had a lot of options when he chose this career, he had done fairly well for himself. He had risen up to the level of centurion, he had a lot of power, he had a lot of income for what would have been expected for a man of his station, and he was doing fairly well. He also, this goes hand in hand with him being a a commander in Israel, he was a conqueror or an occupier. Now, Israel had been conquered not quite a hundred years before this. So he wasn't one of the ones who went in to conquer them, but he was part of the occupying force that was there to maintain Roman rule in this area that had been conquered by the Roman Empire. Now, occupying forces typically don't view their conquered, the conquered people, the people that they've conquered well. They typically view them with a certain disdain or a certain contempt. And that was doubly true of the Romans. The Romans valued strength. They valued power. So when they conquered somebody, now those people were just weak. So there really was not a whole lot, at least from a worldly perspective, about Israel and certainly about the religion in Israel, Judaism, that would have appealed to this centurion. 
So you put it all together, and the centurion is really a fairly unlikely candidate for conversion. He's an unlikely candidate for conversion to uh, Judaism, and not a very likely candidate, at least in human terms, for faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I do believe that he has been saved, that he has put his faith in God, that he has been born again and transformed into the image of the Savior. I believe that's happened, and that's significant. I believe there's a reason why Luke puts that in this passage, and he puts it where he does. And it can be a great encouragement to us. Because this man who was very unlikely to become a believer. Somebody, if you'd have seen him when he was born, wherever he was, somewhere in the Roman Empire, if you'd have looked at this man and you'd have said, what are the chances of this man ever hearing the Gospel, let alone responding to the Gospel, you would have said, it's very, very slim. And from, from a human standpoint, almost impossible. It'd be like somebody being born in a Muslim country somewhere who was unlikely they were ever going to hear the Gospel and they were taught things that are um, that they're just the opposite of the Gospel. What are the chances of this person hearing the Gospel? That would have been the case for this person. And yet, I'll make the case in a few minutes, I believe that he was saved. So, so I think Luke puts that there for us. Remember, Luke was written to Gentiles. He puts it there for a reason. And it can be a great encouragement to us. One thing, it can encourage us in our faith. You know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, we're unlikely candidates to be saved. There's none of us who's worthy. None of us who has any merit or deserves what God is, has provided for us. And yet, if this Roman centurion can display the kind of faith that we're going to look at this morning, then why not us? Then why not us? Why can't we? It's something that we should aspire to. And my point this morning is going to be that I want the kind of faith. I want the kind of faith that the centurion displayed in my life. I want it in your life. I want it at Trinity Bible Church. This is what I want to see in all of our lives. So this, seeing the centurion, seeing where he's come from, knowing the faith that he had should encourage us that it's possible for us as well. Secondly, it should encourage our evangelism. Seeing that the, the centurion has been converted, seeing that he has come to Christ, should encourage us when we think of others. Now, I imagine some of you have had an experience where maybe you had an opportunity to present the Gospel. Maybe you had a chance to share the reason for the hope that is in you. And maybe you thought, you know, this person's never going to respond. And maybe it's for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because their life is going so well. They've got wealth. They've got power. They've got position. They've got fame. They've got whatever. Why would they want Christ at this point in their lives? And so you didn't share the Gospel. Or maybe they've just been making a series of bad decisions. Maybe everything in their life has pointed away from Christ. Maybe they've been serving themselves and serving other idols. And you look at them and you say, this is not a candidate for Christianity. This isn't somebody who you would expect to respond to the Gospel. And maybe you didn't share it. Or maybe that, that situation is coming up in your life. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to share the Gospel with somebody who is not what we would consider a right candidate for salvation. This should encourage us. If God can save this guy, He can save anybody. And then hand in hand with that, this should encourage our prayer for the lost. Because maybe there are those in your life who you have shared the Gospel with. Maybe somebody in your life who is important to you. 
And you've shared the Gospel with them. Maybe you've pleaded with them to come to Christ. And so far, they have rejected that. And now you're concerned. Now you're, 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 you're perhaps even depressed about their likely place in eternity because they have not responded to the Gospel. Well, this passage should encourage us to continue to faithfully pray for those people. Because again, if God can save the centurion, God can save your cousin or your brother or your, or your child or your parent or whoever it might be, your co-worker or your friend. God can save who He chooses to save. And we should be praying for them. I believe that this is why Luke writes this to these Gentiles. He writes this to these Greeks and these Romans who are going to read this message because he wants them to see that although there are people in their lives who you wouldn't think would respond to the Gospel, it is possible. And they should be encouraged in the hope that Jesus can save anybody. Well, let me give you some evidence. Some evidence that this centurion was saved. I think we're going to see fairly good evidence at the end of this passage that indeed he had put faith in Christ. But I believe that when Jesus comes to Capernaum, he's already has faith in God. I believe that. And here's some evidence of that. First of all, he loved his servant. Now, if this was the only thing, Maybe I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in this. But I treat this as Exhibit A. It's evidence. This by itself would not prove that the man is saved. In fact, even the word highly valued can mean a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that he really, truly loved him. That he really had made a commitment to the man's well-being. You know, highly valued it basically means the same thing in the original as it means in our language. I highly value my wife. I highly value my daughter. I love them more than I love any other human being. I love it. But you could also say, a farmer might say, I highly value my prize bull. It's a very different thing. I highly value it, but not in the same way that I value a person. So this could have meant something like that. It could have meant that this was just a really good servant. This is somebody that he didn't want to lose. This is like you know, a manager or a business owner may highly value an employee. He might not care a lot about the employee's well-being. He just doesn't want to lose the employee. So it could have meant that. But I think as we, as we look at the rest of the evidence, it becomes clear that he really loves this person. In fact, in Matthew's account, he says, uh, uh, this comes directly from the centurion, he, he communicates to Jesus that the man is paralyzed and in great pain. And that is what the centurion wants to relieve this man of. He sees his servant in pain. He sees him paralyzed. And he wants to relieve him of that. So I believe he loves the servant. I really believe he has a compassion for this other man. And that's rare. That's rare. It's rare in the world, but it's especially rare for a Roman centurion. A servant isn't somebody you're supposed to love. That's not somebody you're supposed to care about. That's just a sign of weakness to somebody who's supposed to be displaying power. But he loves this man. This man who can do nothing for him. second thing we see is he loves God's people. See in verse 5, it says he loves our nation. And this is on the testimony of Jewish elders. It's Jewish elders that say that the Roman centurion loves their nation, loves God's people. They speak very highly of him. They say he is worthy to have you do this for him. Well, that's not normal either. 
the Jewish leaders are not predisposed to to praise the Roman occupiers. It's just the opposite. They're the people that they hate. So for the Roman or for the Jews to praise a Roman centurion, a Roman commander, this man who's occupying their territory, who's conquered their territory, really is a strong testimony. It's kind of like when a business owner or a manager is hiring somebody and you get a list of references. Well, you put more weight on some than you do on others. If the man puts a, his, uh, if, the, if the, the potential employee puts his mother down as a reference, you're probably not putting a lot of stock in that reference. Because that's, of course that's what she's going to say. But in this case, they have no ulterior motives for, for uh, praising the uh, centurion. So when they say he loves our nation, it seems to be true. He has a love for God's people. Then he built their synagogue. Well, there are a lot of ways that he could have showed the people that he loves them. But he chooses to build them a synagogue. What's the purpose of the synagogue? The purpose of the synagogue... uh, Oh, first of all, the language here suggests that he funded it. That this was all on him. He's the one who did it. They give him full credit. He is the one who built our synagogue. This doesn't suggest that he lobbied Herod on their behalf to have a synagogue built there. This doesn't suggest that he, once they had raised the funds for the materials, that he had his men help with some of the construction. This suggests that he is the one who did this. He looked at these people and he wanted to help them. And this is the way that he chose to use his own resources to help this group of people. And to what end? For what purpose would you build a synagogue? Well, the one purpose in the synagogue, a main purpose in the synagogue, is to worship God. And so when he does this, when he builds the people in Capernaum and the surrounding area, a synagogue, he is not just making a commitment to private worship. It's a commitment to see God worshipped in a public way. He wants to see the city, the community, and the surrounding area be worshiping God because it's good for them and God deserves to be worshipped. And more than that, the main way that God is worshipped in the synagogue is through the teaching of His Word. And that's what the man wants. He's committed to God's Word. But again, not just committed to His Word in His own life. He wants God's Word to be proclaimed. He wants people to hear God's Word. He wants the people in Capernaum to be taught the truth that God has revealed to them through His Word. So he makes that commitment. And when he builds a synagogue, he's showing his commitment to the worship of God and his commitment to the teaching of God's Word. And then he recognizes Christ. Now, I believe that based on his, his, his exposure to the Old Testament, what he's seen there, the Spirit has illuminated him, that he understands and he's put his faith, I believe, at this point, in the coming Messiah, that there would be a sacrifice for his sin. I believe he's seen that at this point. And then when Christ shows up, he recognizes Christ. Now, it could be, you could look at this, and if this were the only bit of evidence, and say, no, he maybe just 
heard that there was a miracle worker, and so he sent his men to go get that miracle worker in hopes that he might be able to save his servant. But when you look at the way that he approaches him, the way that he goes to get him, the way that he requests, it seems that this is more than just a commander taking a long shot on some miracle worker to heal his servant. He seems to recognize Jesus as more than that. And we'll see that more as we move forward in this passage. Okay, so now his servant is sick. This man who, I believe, and I believe the text supports, was a believer at this point, has a servant who he loves who becomes very sick. Now, this is a trial in his life. This is a trial in the centurion's life. And what's the purpose of a trial? Well, it's twofold, and these are both related. But the first purpose, or one purpose, of a trial in your life, the reason that God brings trials into your life, is to produce steadfastness in your life. We're familiar with James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So this trial is having this effect in this man's life. It's producing steadfastness. It's producing uh, perseverance. This is perfecting him. It doesn't make him perfect at this point, but it moves him toward perfection. It moves him toward completion. This is part of the sanctification that's happening in this man's life. The second uh, purpose of a trial in every one of our lives is that it proves our faith. And it's related to this, but it shows that our faith, in fact, is genuine faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. They, they have ele- it has elements of what James says, but it also shows that it proves the genuine, genuineness of our faith. He talks about various trials that we may have to go through in this life. And what does that lead to? The tested genuineness of your faith. Jesus tells a parable. It, it has the, the negative example of this when he tells the parable of the sower. And he sows seeds in the thorny soil. The seeds spring up. They seem to be alive. They seem to be born again. They seem to be a new creation in Christ. But when the trials come, when the weeds spring up, they choke them out. And the plant withers and it dies. And it reveals that the faith was never a true faith. It was never a true response to God's Word. And that's a good thing for that soil. Not that it wasn't a true response, but it's good that they know that. And so trials are important in our lives because the way that I respond to a trial in my life will reveal to me whether or not my faith is authentic. And if I stand up under that trial based on the faith that God has given me, based on what God has done in my life, based on what the Spirit is doing today in my life, that can give me assurance. It can give me confidence that my faith is real and I truly am a child of God. But if I fall away in times of trial and don't stand firm, if I don't persevere, that's a clue to me that maybe my faith is not authentic. And I better deal with that. So that's what's going on in his life right now. So how does he respond? 
How does he respond to this trial in his life? This trial that, if, it's, if, if his faith is authentic, will be producing steadfastness and is, in fact, going to show us whether his faith is authentic. How does he respond in this trial? First thing he does, he turns to Jesus for help. As soon as he hears that Jesus is in Capernaum, he sends the Jewish elders to go and to, uh, to request, to beg him, to plead with him to come and heal his servant, to rescue him from this trial. Now, the fact that he sent others, you might look at that and you might say, well, you know, that doesn't show a real commitment that he, you know, he didn't get up and go himself. Well, in verse 7, I think it reveals fairly clearly that he did it as a demonstration of humility. He did it because he did not consider himself worthy to go to Jesus. So he asked the Jewish elders to go on his behalf. But he turns to Jesus for help in times of a trial. That's the first way he responds. I drop down a few verses. The next thing that we see is he calls Jesus Lord. Now, this is another one of these places where if this were just all by itself, you might say, well, that could just be a nicety. That could, that could just be him being polite. He's coming to him and he's saying, Lord. But when you consider how he talks to Jesus around this statement, it seems fairly clear that he actually sees Jesus as Lord. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He sees Jesus as the exalted one. He sees himself as unworthy in relationship to Jesus. He is defining Jesus in this statement as his Lord. He turns to Jesus for help and he calls Jesus Lord. The other thing, now what we see here is that he's poor in spirit. And you remember about a month and a half ago when we were looking at the Beatitudes in Luke's um, chapter 6 in the, the Sermon on the Plain. The first Beatitude that Jesus offers is, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in Matthew's version, given in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this isn't uh, physical poverty. This isn't material poverty that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about those who recognize that they are completely unworthy when they face God. Those who recognize that they have absolutely nothing in themselves to contribute to their own salvation. There's nothing in themselves that merits anything from God. They have absolutely nothing to offer God. And that's the way that this man approaches Jesus. He doesn't send people to Jesus and he's saying, hey, maybe we can work something out. He doesn't tell Jesus, no, I, I can do you a lot of favors. I'm the commander in this area. There's a lot that I can do for you. I could help you out. You come, you do me this favor, then I'll do you a favor. He doesn't do that. Not at all. He says, I'm not worthy. He is poor in spirit. And as we talked about, when we looked at the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are the essential characteristics of every true believer. And this is the first one in both cases. In both sermons, this is the first one. This one's almost foundational. You have to recognize your own unworthiness. You have to recognize your own depravity apart from Christ. That you have nothing to offer Him. And this man does. 
This man, who you wouldn't expect it from a Roman centurion who's, who's the most powerful man in the area, that he would think that he has nothing to offer this one wandering prophet. You wouldn't think so. But he does. That's how he sees himself in relation to Jesus. He is poor in spirit. And then we see he believed. He believed that Jesus was able to do what he requested of Jesus. There's no question in his mind. In fact, when Jesus is coming to go to his house, he says, you don't even need to come to my house. He tells Jesus that, 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 that Jesus has more power than what Jesus seems prepared to, to, uh, to, to demonstrate. He knows that Jesus can do everything that He asked Him to do. There's no doubt in His mind. He has complete confidence in Jesus. Now when Jesus hears these things, Jesus marvels at what He has just witnessed. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was surprised. I remember as a child when I used to read this passage, I think, was Jesus surprised? Was Jesus caught off guard? Did this, did this surprise Jesus that this centurion expressed this kind of faith? No, that's not what the text is saying. Jesus wasn't surprised at all. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. The word here is most often used both in Scripture and outside of Scripture to describe the reaction that men have to the deeds of God. In fact, in uh, Greek and Roman myths, in Homer, the Iliad, the, the Odyssey, when Homer uses this word to describe the way that men react when the Greek gods, little g gods, when they do certain things that are supposed to be amazing but pale in significance to what our God does. But the men are amazed. They marvel at these things. We see it in the Old Testament. The Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. They, we see it there. This word translates Old Testament Hebrew words, and we find it quite often in Psalms, when people marvel at what God has done. And then in the New Testament, we find it often used of the way that people respond to Jesus. When He does a miracle, people marvel. Sometimes when He teaches in ways that you wouldn't expect the uneducated or relatively uneducated son of a carpenter to teach. He says certain things. He teaches things. He debates with the Pharisees in a way that's never happened before. He teaches with authority. And people marvel at that. The word is used to describe the reaction of men to the deeds of God. And it has a range of meaning. It can range from wonder to awe to fear to delight. And, 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 and awe is probably in view here, but I believe that delight is the main thing that Jesus is experiencing here. And it's delight because this is exactly the way it was supposed to happen. And he knew it would. But you know, of, of all of the people who could have displayed this kind of faith, from the, the, the Jewish elders to the people who had been close to Jesus all of this time, to the little children who'd witnessed what Jesus said, it was the centurion, the most unlikely person is the one who displayed this faith. And it just delighted our Lord. Jesus marveled at a faith that He didn't even find in Israel at the time. Now, let's talk about, again, review a little bit, what is the nature of this faith? Well, first of all, it's a completely unlikely candidate. 
Now, if you were going to pick, who would be the most likely person in Israel at that time, on that day, to be, explaining, or to be uh, displaying great faith? Or for the first part of Jesus' ministry, this year or so that he's been ministering, who would be the most likely? Now, would it be maybe, maybe God would have saved one of those Pharisees who'd been studying his word, who knew the law, and perhaps he'd been doing it for the wrong reasons, to exalt himself rather than to exalt God. But maybe God would have changed him and revealed to him the the, the meaning of the truth and the law that he'd been studying. And maybe that person would have been the one who could have displayed the greatest faith. Or maybe it would have been Peter. You know, who's been with him from the beginning and heard him teach and seen the miracles. Maybe it would have been Mary, his mother, who, who's, who's known from the beginning that he was special, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Savior of the world. Maybe it would have been some little child who he'd ministered to. Children have great faith, but it wasn't. It was a Roman centurion. Who would have guessed it? And it just delighted Jesus. Because this is what... He and the Father and the Spirit had been planning for all of eternity that this would happen. And it is so like God to make that choice. What an unlikely candidate for, for, uh, for that kind of faith. Second thing that we've seen is it produced love. It produced love in the centurion. And not love for somebody who you would expect. Jesus says earlier in the, in the Gospel, He says, you know, you love um, those who love you and you hate those who hate you. But this guy's loving people who you wouldn't expect him to love. He's loving a servant. He's loving the Jews who are more or less his enemy and certainly not somebody who we'd be inclined to love. He's loving God's people. He's loving the unlovely. He's loving the unlikely. It produced that love for His servant. It produced that love for God's people. And then it produced a commitment to worship. It caused Him to be committed to worship a holy God. And not only to worship, but He was committed to God's Word. And once again, not just committed to God's Word in His own life, but He wanted to see God's Word proclaimed publicly for people to have an opportunity to hear God's Word. This is what this this faith produced in Him. I think sometimes we read this passage and we think, well, Jesus is only talking about that last little bit of faith there where He tells Him, yeah, you can do anything. You don't even have to come to my house. I believe all of this is in view when Jesus is amazed, when He's delighted at the faith in this man. We see the, the faith it produces um, in the man the desire to turn to Jesus in the time of trial. And it causes him to display true humility in his life. It caused him to call Jesus Lord and to put his full confidence in Jesus. This is the full package that Jesus sees in this man. This is what has been accomplished in his life. And it's all been accomplished through his faith. Now, who was responsible for this faith? When Jesus looks at the man and he's amazed, when he looks at the man and he's delighted, who is he really delighted in? Now, to a certain degree, you can say he's delighted in the man. He's delighted in what has happened to the man. He's delighted in who the man is today, especially relative to who the man was at some point in the past. That delights him. But his delight is really in God. Because ultimately, it's God who's responsible for this faith. And Jesus just shakes his head, I think. He just shakes his head in in delight 
and is just so pleased and so delighted with what his father, along with the Spirit, and he himself was included in this, what they have done. So like God to take that man and to transform him into what we've seen. I want to see every one of us transformed into that. I, I, I believe that most of us, I hope all of us here, have been transformed into the image of Christ. I hope we've all put our faith in Jesus Christ. But I want our faith to look like the faith of that centurion. I want each one of us to exhibit a faith that delights Jesus. I want Jesus to look at us and to just shake His head with delight and say, what a great God we are. He, the Father, and the Spirit together are to have done that in Philip's life, in Tim's life, in Dwayne's life, in Courtney's life, in David's life, in all of our lives. What a great God He is to have done that in those unlikely people. He has done this. It's a faith that God bestows on the most unlikely people. That doesn't mean that He doesn't bestow it on those who you might expect Him to bestow it on. God saves who He chooses to save. And He saves for His own reasons and His own great mysterious wisdom. But He loves to do that. He loves to save the people that confound the world. And the world says, why would He do that? And He does it because He's God. The faith that delights Jesus is a faith that produces love. I want that to be the case in everyone's life here. I want that to be one of the things that defines Trinity Bible Church. That we are a church who loves each other. We're a church who love the unlovely, who love the people that nobody else wants to love, and we're a church that loves God's people. And we want a faith that is committed to worship. To worship God in every way. To worship God through singing and song like we do and we're committed to doing on a public basis every Lord's Day. I want to worship God that way. But in all the other ways too, I want a church that, that, that is made up of people who define God in His rightful place, who see Him as exalted above all things and recognize who I am in relation to Him and worship Him, who fall on our faces before Him. I want a church that's devoted to Him in every way and a church that then goes out and serves Him as an expression of that worship. And I want a church that's committed to God's Word. Because God is committed to His Word. And if He's committed to it, then we should be too. I want a church that hungers for the truth that we find in His Word because we believe that it is the power to transform us into His image. It's a faith that turns to Jesus in times of trial. That's what every one of us needs. We need to turn to Him. And it's not a very human thing to do. You know, there are a lot of people who are, who are happy to turn to God in times of plenty. Who are happy to give Him lip service in times of plenty. But as soon as things start going wrong, they want to fix them themselves. It's a faith that manifests true humility. And this is also not a human characteristic at all. It's not like men to go to God or anybody else and say, I am not worthy. It's a very human characteristic, in fact, to 
uh, to think that we are worthy. In fact, back when we were studying the Beatitudes, we also looked at the woes and we saw the corresponding woe to each Beatitude. He said, blessed are the poor, that is those who are poor in spirit, but woe to those who are rich, that is those who think that they are worthy. Those who think that they are entitled. Those who think that they merit anything from God or anybody else. This is a faith that manifests that true humility. It's a faith that submits to Christ's Lordship. A faith that makes Him the Lord of our lives. And finally, it's a faith that has perfect confidence in Jesus. Unwavering belief that Jesus can do everything that He has claimed to do and everything that we need Him to do. And those things, the things that He's claimed to do, and the things that we need Him to do are the things that are on this list. We can't accomplish these things by just setting our mind to it. We can't just conjure up this kind of faith. If we try to do that through our own effort, we're going to end up with nothing but hypocrisy and affectation. But if we trust God and submit to Him, and when He is working out these things in our lives, take, take the action that we can take to allow Him to produce these things in our life, then we will see this kind of faith produced in our lives. This kind of faith exhibited at Trinity Bible Church. And we will delight our Lord.